Welcome to Songs of Praise from 3ABN Australia Radio.
Tell you where I'd be 
Hope you're enjoying Songs of Praise. Here's some more inspirational music.
Oh 
Psalm 57, verses 9 and 10. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds.
can exchange it someday for a crown to the old rugged cross I will ever be true is shame and reproach gladly Oh, bless me now, my Savior. 
Savior, I come to
Songs of Praise continues with more inspirational music.
been listening to Songs of Praise, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. Today, in 3ABN Australia Radio's book reading, we are continuing Banish the Night by the late missionary pilot and pastor Len Barnard, read by Clive Nash. The book is set in Papua New Guinea and is broadcast with the kind permission of Pacific Press and is available in print and digital editions online. Chapter 3. A Stupid Mistake After my guests had departed, I went to bed, but not to sleep. I kept thinking about my future. The war was about over. What should I do when discharged? Could I become missionary? Oh God, I prayed, If this be thy will, open the way for me. This became my all-consuming ambition. When the war ended, I applied to the mission board in Sydney. The reply was deeply disappointing, because the mission was in the process of reorganising its disrupted work. No vacancy existed. My faith sagged. I did not then realise that the Lord was still leading and that I was not yet prepared for the work he was planning to give me. After my discharge, I joined the struggling public health department of Papua New Guinea and was sent to administer the hospital at Bogia, 90 miles along the coast from Madang. 
There I learned to treat leprosy. Before the close of my two-year term of government service, the mission invited me to treat lepers in the Highlands in a joint government mission hospital. Thus, happily joining the mission staff in 1948, I at last realised my ambition. On a bleak day in June 1949, my wife and three-year-old daughter Sharon and I flew into Mount Hagen in a dragon biplane. The ancient plane battled the elements valiantly and brought us inland to Togaba, eight miles westward in the captivating Nabilia Valley, flanked on the west by a perpendicular escarpment, always charming in its ever-changing moods. Greeting us cheerily as we alighted from the plane, the local government officer lurched and bounced us a mile to the end of the primitive road in a battered army jeep. Then we plodded for seven miles the muddy, mountainous trail, suitable only for pigs to travel. A burly New Guinean named Waggy carried Sharon on his broad shoulders while the rest of us puffed uphill and slipped and slid down the filthy trail for three interminable hours in the unaccustomed 7,000-foot altitude. Mud-splattered and weary, we scaled the last ridge to stand on the location of the future 500-patient colony, 600 acres covered with tall swamp reeds called Pit-Pit. Home was a hut of kunai grass, with plaited bamboo for floor and ceiling. Full of enthusiasm, I visualised lines of neat buildings on the property, surrounded by acres of garden, with hundreds of lepers successfully treated. But for my young wife, with our small daughter, the dismal situation produced only tears. Although there is still much to learn about leprosy, the oldest known disease, progress has been made, and modern drugs do give a measure of hope to the formerly hopeless. For centuries the people of this large and populous area had been slaves to an evil spirit called Kerr. Driven by fear, they bowed down and worshipped sacred stones dedicated to him. We were there to introduce Christ in place of the stones and freedom in place of fear. After six weeks, the president of our Coral Sea Union mission, Pastor H. White, visited us, together with four other senior missionaries, Pastors C. Hart, E. A. Bame, C. Pascoe, and H. W. Nolan, who were surveying highlands for mission development. That evening, a cold, wet night, with water dripping from the grass roof all around the house, the first Togaba Hansonide, or leper colony, board waiting was held. We seemed to be a frigid island in a sea of water, mud, and high mountains. But we brightened the situation with a fire in the living room on a sheet of flat iron covered with soil, a common practice, and sat around the blaze until eleven o'clock in the cheery atmosphere formulating plans. Before retiring, as a safety precaution, I poured water over the glowing embers. Chiming peals of the midnight hour on my wife's treasured engagement clock were the last sounds I heard before drifting into slumber. At the next sound, dripping water or crackling fire, I reluctantly opened my eyes. Fire indeed, an ominous red glow silhouetting the bedroom doorway. Springing out of bed, I wakened my wife, rushed into the living room, shouted to the visitors. Surfacing from a deep sleep, one of them dashed into the room yelling, Where are they? Where are they? He thought we were being attacked by hostile New Guineans. But the reply was blazing at the end of the room. Eager flames spread along the ceiling, 
hungrily devouring the walls, greedily sucking air through the burnt hole in the ceiling and carrying flames to the tinder-dry grass roofing above. Frantically I beat at the flames with a bag. All we owned was contained in this house. Was it all to be destroyed? Hastily seizing bundles of their goods, all our guests but one rushed outside. But Pastor Hart was too dazed to understand the reason for the confusion, but finally aroused, and he hastily exited. Presuming my wife would have taken little Sharon outside after I had wakened her, flames all around me, and realising the futility, I grabbed the radio near the door and dashed outside to hear the startled men shout, Your wife is still inside. Oh, God help me, I prayed. How could my dear wife and daughter be alive in such an inferno? Rushing inside, I saw my wife shocked into inaction, dreamily putting on her dressing gown in the swirling flames and smoke. I snatched Sharon, screaming with terror, and still clutching her favourite doll from her cot. The doorways were smothered in flames. We were trapped. Above our bed was a small opening used as a window. Maybe we could squeeze through it. Climbing onto the bed, I helped my dazed wife scramble through the opening, then dropped Sharon to her. Heaving and shoving, I finally forced my way through. Emerging from the pall of smoke, we all gazed back at the spot where our house had stood. Now one huge ball of smoke and leaping flames. Ninety seconds had separated us from a horrible death. We thanked our Heavenly Father for sparing us. The apparent cause of the fire was hot ash that had been carried into the ceiling when I poured water onto the burning embers. This ash had smouldered until it burst into flame. Bedraggled, we moved out of Togba early in the morning. Losses included valuable office records and movie film just taken on the trip through the highlands. The few articles of clothing were shared among us, the comic effect drawing laughs from our otherwise sad hearts. Still suffering from shock, my wife was carried on a crude stretcher made by eager, crowding, sympathetic Highlanders. To them, our disaster was no surprise. Had not our house been built on a ceremonial ground dedicated to Kerr? They intimated that we had desecrated the sacred ground and provoked his wrath. That day we flew to the coast, where the mission and many gracious friends helped rehabilitate us. Arriving back a few weeks later, we were joined by F. L. Averling and his family. He had a commission to set up a sawmill, cut timber and build, and by struggling against almost insurmountable odds, he eventually made a notable contribution to the colony. Before permanent buildings could be erected, however, we built temporary huts for staff and patients, as I was anxious to commence treatment for the thousands of Hansonides, or lepers, scattered throughout the highlands. Nine months after our initial trip into Togba, our first patients were admitted. In June 1950, Mrs Olive and Elsie Pierce arrived from New Zealand, our first nurses. At this early stage, the hospital was operated under very discouraging conditions. Yet these two, forerunners of a noble band of nurses, treated lepers with medical practices of a high calibre, given unstintingly. As news of our activities spread throughout the valleys and over the mountains, the number of patients steadily increased to several hundred. We felt we were at last making inroads into this serious disease in the highlands of New Guinea, helping to outflank the enemy of body and soul. Chapter 4. 
the false god Kerr. Each Togaba clan chief has his own sacred stone symbolizing Kerr, the spirit they worship. Usually small enough to fit in the palm of a large hand, the round stones are called female and the long ones male. Rarely carved, they are always secured from a distant land. When about to fight their bidouers or enemies, or when serious illness strikes, they pray to these stones and offer them pig's blood. For more elaborate ceremonies, the annual sing-sings, the sacred stones are decorated with red ochre. Always on an eminence facing eastward, the ceremonial ground is a rectangular area bordered on three sides with sacred casuarina trees. The eastern end is open. Down the centre of the courtyard are circular mounds of earth about three feet high and two feet in diameter, bound with hewn planks, a sacred tree growing in each. Under these trees, pig's fat is buried. About 20 feet apart, the mounds could easily be taken for altars. Here the devil worshippers conduct rites that still mystify the white man. At the western end of the open courtyard is a hut where the Togabas deposit such valuables as bird-of-paradise plumes, large pearl shells called kinas, spears and bows and arrows, all of which are used as decorations in the sing-sings. Behind this treasury hut is an enclosure bordered by a 12-foot-high fence where in long huts the sacred stones are kept and the mystical homage to Kerr is offered. Women are rigorously prevented from entering. If one does enter, she may be punished by death. For the first two days of the Sing Sing, the priests of Kerr chant mysterious incantations to the sacred stones. Finally, an oblation of pig's blood is poured over the stones. During the ceremonies, large amounts of the best cooked food are offered to Kerr than eaten by the men. That night, the men sleep on the dirt floors of the long, low huts, their almost naked bodies tightly packed together. Fires lighted every few feet keep them warm. The third day, the men smear their bodies with a foul-smelling oil from a rare jungle tree, bedeck their heads with brilliant displays of bird-of-paradise plumes glistening in their iridescent glory, and paint weird designs on their faces with coloured powder. Then, completing their grotesque masquerade by arming themselves with bows and arrows, spears or tomahawks, the men emerge from the sacred enclosure for the climax of the three-day ceremonial, the Sing Sing itself. The ground reverberates as hundreds of feet stamp with the rhythmic beat of jungle drums. Circling round and round the sacred trees in the courtyard, they sing veneration to Kerr and departed men of valour in dirge-like monotones. The whole effect of gaudy display and monotonous sound appears to hypnotise the primitive mind. It produced a powerful, depressing effect on me. These special sing-sings were the very hub of religious life. More common were the Muga sing-sings, also important social gatherings which culminated in a feast when pigs and kinas were exchanged. These transactions once formed the backbone of the economic system, when debts were liquidated and deals were settled publicly. It was common to see hundreds of pigs tethered and hundreds of kinas decorated with gum and ochre waiting on the grass for exchange. I have often wondered if I could not see in this elaborate heathen ritualism perversions of Old Testament worship forms. In the days of ancient Israel, pagan worship was often conducted in groves, God complained that Israel set up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree, 2 Kings 17, verse 10. 
While treating, housing and feeding the Hanson-eyed patients, we decided to erect a church. We considered several sites, but none equaled the place where our house had stood before the fire. Our second house had been built nearer the office, so we decided to build the church on the old Sing Sing ground. While some of the local Togobas indulged in doubtful head-shakings, a nearby chief agreed to construct the house of worship by contract. I assisted by levelling the sloping ground with our newly acquired tractor and cultivator. Out of the cheering mob that had gathered while I was driving to the site, an exuberant young fellow jumped onto the front axle. Before I could stop, he was bounced off, a rear wheel rolling over his body, and a tine of the cultivator deeply gashing his muscular buttocks. Immediately, the cheering changed to wailing. His friends crowded round the young man, watching the blood streaming from his ugly wound. I rushed him up to our clinic, and upon examination was relieved to discover that the tractor wheel had caused no internal injuries or bone fractures. I sutured the deep gash and placed a drain in the wound, and the patient made an uncomplicated recovery. To be continued. Tune in again next week for the next episode of Banish the Night, written by Len Barnard and read by Clive Nash. Let's listen to William Ackland as he shares a psalm from his paraphrase of the Bible called The Gift. Today, friends, I would like to share Psalm 14 with you. This also is a psalm of David and directed to the choir director. And the thought for this psalm is, The godless are fools, God will triumph. Verse 1. Only a fool would say, God does not exist. But how would they know? For they are corrupt and do unimaginably wicked things. Not one of them does a good thing. From his dwelling place, God looks down on the human family to see if there is anyone who yearns after him. But all have turned away from the Lord, and like a flock of vultures, they have become depraved. There is none who lives a godly life, No, not even one. Will all these evil people never learn of the right and the good way? They consume the Lord's children as though they were food and have no desire to turn their lives over to God. They live their lives in fear, for God is only with his righteous ones. The wicked do all they can to make the lives of the poor a misery, but the Lord is their safe hiding place. How I wish that salvation for Israel would come from Zion, for that time when the Lord frees his captive people, allowing Jacob to rejoice and Israel to be joyful again.